Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. Father, I just, I thank you with all my heart for the ways that you lead and guide us in every day, for opening up our hearts to hear your word. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would soften all of the hard places in us, that you would open our ears, that you would remove any fleshly or demonic obstacle to our hearing your word. I pray, Lord, that we would allow the word of God, not some preacher guy, but the word of God and the voice of the Holy Spirit to confront our assumptions, to overturn our worldviews, to break our paradigms. You, Jesus, might become the rock on which our houses are built. Let all of the things be shaken. Let us have our feet planted on the only unshakable thing, and that is you, beautiful Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. So last week we started off in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a considerable amount of time just talking about what this is, this sermon, this these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and why they're so important, and they are desperately important. I've been studying and praying for what I'm preaching on Sunday, and uh, I feel like the Lord laid this, this, this verse, Galatians 5, 6, on my heart, um, uh, and, it, where, and it says, for, for circumcision or non-circumcision is nothing, only faith working through love. Now, that might not sound connected to the Sermon on the Mount, but it is absolutely connected because what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is the how of the kingdom. We talked about it last week as a politic, a way of engaging with the world, a way of discussing, how, uh, of laying out a framework through which we see all the stuff that's around us. That's, that's what Jesus was doing. And as I've been thinking and pondering on this, the demonstration of the kingdom, when Jesus came and he was healing the sick and casting out demons and, and, uh, and, and you know, doing that stuff, multiplying bread, those were all demonstrations of, of 
the what of the kingdom. This is what happens when God's kingdom comes, and this is the kingdom we're pushing towards. It's the kingdom prophesied by the ancient Jewish prophets, the kingdom in which the, the nations of the world beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they study war no more. This, it is the nation of, uh, it is, is the, the place, the kingdom of heaven is the place where sins are forgiven, where debts are canceled, where uh, slaves go free, where men and women live in perfect connection and love for God and for each other. That's the what of the kingdom. It's this beautiful vision of what God is accomplishing in the earth by all of the means through which he is accomplishing it. And Jesus is the me, Jesus is the one who accomplished it in the earth. But the how is almost as important as the what. Because there's been uh, attempts throughout all of human history to accomplish something that looks a little bit like Jesus, the kingdom Jesus describes. You know, the United States of America has, uh, it's, it, in its entire existence, had people explaining what it is doing as the United States uh, in the terms of we are trying, we're pushing towards something that looks a lot like the kingdom Jesus describes, especially in the areas of freedom and equality, etc. Okay, right? Because that's that's what we do, right? That's that's what the United States of America likes to tell itself about everything that it's doing in the world, that we are working towards freedom for all people, not just Americans, but all throughout the world. And I'm not saying we haven't done that, although we 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 missed the how. Okay, and there's a whole lot of things I could say about uh about the way the United States has attempted to and what the United States was attempting to do. I, all, I will really, all I'll really say right now is that it was far more often about money than it was about freedom. But we'll, we will leave that, we'll leave that aside for the moment. Because even if it was about freedom, even if it was about freedom for every individual, even if it was about creating a kinder, gentler planet, right? Even if that's what we were out to do, we missed the Sermon on the Mount. Because what the Sermon on the Mount is about is the, it's the how of the kingdom. We've got the what firmly established. It looks like this. It looks like the rulership of God. It looks like freedom. It looks like a kingdom of love, a kingdom of equality, a kingdom where there are no poor anymore, a kingdom where there are no broken anymore, a kingdom where uh, human flourishing is at its maximum capacity. Okay, that's, this is the kingdom that Jesus describes. This is the kingdom the prophets of the Old Testament describe, a kingdom where God lives in the midst of his people and rules the earth in, in perfection, and that's something we all want to see. And all throughout Scripture, there's all these different pictures. Like in the book of Revelation, there's beautiful pictures. In, the, in, uh, in, in 
Jesus teaching these beautiful pictures. In the book of Isaiah, there's beautiful pictures. I read Isaiah chapter 2 at a prayer meeting this weekend, and it's this beautiful thing. It says, in the, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord become chief among the mountains, and people will say to each other, come, let us go up into the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, right? The, this is this prophetic vision looking forward to a day when the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And it is something God is going to do, and it's something God has already accomplished in the work of Jesus. We just haven't seen it in full manifestation yet. And our job in the meantime is to engage with Jesus in the bringing about of the kingdom. That's what we're here to do. We do that by witnessing to other people. Hey, the kingdom has come, which by the way, we need to talk a lot about what it means to witness to other people. The gospel is good news. Are you aware of that? It's not good advice. Okay? It's good news. We tell people about what Jesus has already done. We don't tell people what they should do. That's not our job. Our job is to tell them what Jesus has done, what, what is true and real in the world. Jesus died on the cross and defeated sin and death for you. And if you want to be a part of that, all you have to do is believe what I'm telling you and start living your life according to that truth. That Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, so sin and death are defeated. And now you can live a different kind of way. You're free to live a different kind of way. A way that's not afraid of death. A way that leads to true flourishing. A way that leads to real, actual humanity that's been restored to you by what Jesus did on the cross. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, you're an evil, horrible person and you need to repent. No, that's not the gospel. That's something else. The gospel is, this is what Jesus did for you. Okay, now does that, is everybody with me? Okay, it's good news. It's not good advice. And I'm not saying good advice is something we should never give. I'm just saying don't call it gospel because it's not. And some people, when they begin to tell people that the way that they're living life is destructive, etc., then they tell, they, they believe that they have shared the gospel with this person and that's not true. When a doctor tells you you're sick, that's not good news, is it? No, that's bad news. So when we tell our culture that it's sick, is that good news or bad news? Bad news. It's bad news. What we need to be telling them is that there is a cure. That's good news. Do you see the difference? Okay. So instead of, instead of so I'm going to make sure I'm following along here. So instead of, like I understand it, so instead of, so instead of telling like the culture that, hey, you're doing this wrong, or hey, you're doing that wrong, say, hey, um, hey, um, God can help you with that? Is that what you're meaning? No. I mean, kind of. Yes. Okay. Reality is, everybody knows they're sinners anyway. We don't have to tell anybody that. They're all aware. Yeah. But what we do need to tell them is, all the stuff that's gone on in here. Jesus, Jesus is the answer, and Jesus has accomplished the defeat of death, defeat of sin, and you can choose to belong to him and walk out of all that stuff. That's available to you, and that's the news. The picture of gospel, by the way, because that was not a word that was invented 
in the New Testament. That's a word that existed long before that, okay, uh, in the Greek language, which is, I'm trying to remember what it is in, in Greek, just to show off that I know a couple of Greek words. Um, euangelion is the word. Euangelion, which just means good news. Yes. So the term gospel music, did that come from that same air, like the same place or no? <laughs> gospel music is just church music. Okay. But church music from a different, you know, it was white people that called it gospel music, not black people. And black people are the ones that were making the music. And we called it gospel music because it was church music, but not our church music. <laughs> it's their church music. So we had to have a different name for it. Why? So we called it gospel it has nothing to do with the actual meaning of the word. Okay. I mean, nothing. Okay. It, it, was, it was just church music is all. And it's usually about Jesus. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's not, it has really nothing Apple to do with the word. music is, is what hymns are classified under, right? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, my, my understanding of gospel music is, is like, we're talking about like a certain genre of music yeah. that's kind of twangy and... So you could do it, but hymns I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily. Con- I, th- I would think a hymn, hymn is another genre, but that's just my opinion. I don't know. I don't know how things are, what they look like on Spotify or <laughs> Apple Music or what. I rarely even listen to Christian music. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. Pastor Barry and I got into a discussion a long time ago about how horrible Christian music is and I don't I think afterwards he wondered if I was actually saved but <laughs> I'm just not a huge fan you just not like Christian music then? I, I like good Christian music what I just do don't find it very often well that's the problem I can't think of any right now oh, okay. is it because like a I mean, quality-wise, like it's that's like that's a. Are portraying the message or just like music? I don't even know. That's my other problem: is what what is Christian music? Like, if a Christian makes music, they're but it's not about Jesus, is that Christian music? They're just a musician that's. Christian. Or does the music have to be about Jesus? And in what and 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 to what extent does it have to be about Jesus? Like, like. If the song is portraying a Christian value but doesn't actually mention Jesus, is it still Christian music? Do you see what I'm saying? I think putting, I think anything, well, forget it. Is it <clears throat> having a genre, having like a group of music that we call Christian music is just a really bad idea. That's just my opinion. Because secular, secular art. Yeah. Well, there's worship, but then there's other music. Yeah. That people like that used to be called Christian contemporary, <laughs> which is not worship, but is like something else. Anyway, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I just don't enjoy it. Yeah, that's why secular artists who aren't Christian think they can write Christian music. I know a lot of people that like don't really like Christian music or worship music because they like go into it like in depth, and they're like, well, yeah, this doesn't really isn't about all about Jesus. It's about like what He can do for me and that kind of well, stuff. Well, there's that stuff too. Yeah, I mean, I've heard some of that too, and I don't, I don't know how I, I don't. I don't spend enough time with it. My, my issue is, my big issue is that how can we be a light 
in the darkness when we're just hanging around with other lights. That's a good point. Okay, so like, okay, Winter Jam, for instance. Okay. People would people that travel with Winter Jam, et cetera, would say, I was doing ministry, but I want to go, I mean, ministry to other Christians, maybe, because non-Christians don't go to that concert. Does that make sense? I don't think that's necessarily true, though. Um, I mean, it, it, unless things have radically changed. Every Sunday in, in our state. Well, that's true, but I mean, you know what I mean. I'm talking about culturally Christian people. Okay. Anyway, I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be controversial about this. Yeah. I'm just saying, I, I like. I don't listen to. I don't listen to Christian radio stations because I just I, don't I, find. I, don't, I, don't I also don't listen to. I, I don't find. Uh, I don't find the music uh, uh, to be music I enjoy. So that's. I, I, I agree with that statement. Yeah. So that's that's really what I'm talking about. And plus, I have a problem with segmenting off Christian culture away from the rest of culture. Like, for instance, when I was a kid, do you all know who Amy Grant is? She was, okay. When I was a kid, she started as a Christian artist, and then she started making secular music, and, like, the whole Christian world was like, you know, we cast you out. Like, they said she was falling away from Jesus and all this other stuff, which wasn't true at all. She was just making music that didn't happen to be about Jesus, and everybody was like, stone her, stone her. And I just think that's malarkey. That's what it tripped about Lauren Daigle because she's on talk shows. Exactly. So, like, Justin Bieber, he, like, Said that, right. That, like Christian and, and yeah. stuff like that, and right. came out with a new song that like drops a few like curse words. Sure. And I was thinking like, oh, this dude like. He's I mean, we could talk about that too, but we're not going to do that. Today. It's kind of like when when Nathan is it kind. It's in my opinion kind of like when Nathan told us last year when Kanye came out as Christian. And, right. And he had his album, and he went on a Christian. He went on a not Christian talk show. And he actually let a curse word slip, and he's like, "Oh, my Christian report card just went down a rating." Right. And then Nathan was like, he, "Whether or whether or not he's Christian, we should we should just um, we should rejoice with him that he." He's I mean, Christian. let's be honest. Jesus is King was a great album. Yeah. Can we all be honest about that? I mean, it just really was. But do do I care? I mean, that might be that was the only Christian music I listened to last year. But uh, but. <laughs> My issue is we have banned, this literally happens, okay? This literally happens. Bands that attempt but do not make it in the non-Christian world then start writing Christian songs and become famous in the Christian world. And it's because our musical standards are much lower than what exists outside of that Christian little cul-de-sac. And I have a problem with that. Okay, but anyway, like my favorite artists... One of them is a Christian, and a lot of his songs could be are, are deeply Christian songs. Yeah. But he, no one would ever classify him as a Christian artist because he's not. Yeah. What? Is it? Sufjan Stevens. I knew you were gonna say yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. I love him. Yes. And I agree with him. He's a genius. Yes. I mean, bar, just completely. Have you heard the new album? I haven't. It's insane, but it's very, very different. I mean, it's radically, it's, it's all electronic music. It's very odd. But that's, he made like an almost wholly electronic album several albums ago called The Age of Ads. It really reminds me of that. It's, it's great. I love it, but it's very different from like K 
Carrie and Lowell one. Yeah. Which Carrie and Lowell has to be, it has to be admitted that that was like Sufjan at his absolute peak because you weep through the whole thing. I went to the concert and literally I, he went to intermission and I was like, oh, thank God, because I was so like a raw wound just sitting in there, just weeping. My brother-in-law was with me and he was like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not okay. I, I need this 15 minutes just to recover. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. And then he ended the concert with the 4th of July, that song, and, and I just, I didn't speak for a while. I just yeah. said, I was like, take the case, let's go up to the car. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but, you know, most of my artists probably aren't Christians. And, and one of my all-time favorite artists is a Christian, it was a Christian, and all of his music is his journey out of God. Uh, man, he makes some incredibly prophetic statements about the church in those albums. My heart is broken because he's still in such pain and and whatever. But all right, let's we're we're way Any off. Music topic. questions we have, like your mom could be able to answer those, right? Oh yeah, my my mom is amazing. So <laughs> okay, I hope that does that did that completely muddy the waters in regards to I don't remember what even what we were talking about. Uh, but let's go back to this reality. Okay, so we know about the the what of the kingdom. What is Jesus attempt? What did Jesus accomplish? Not attempting to accomplish. He is. He has accomplished it, and we will see it. The end of history has been inaugurated. Okay, Jesus finished the work. That's why he said it is finished on the cross. Jesus finished the work in dying and rising from the dead. It's done. The end of the end of this age has been accomplished. But as the Apostle Paul said, we do not yet see all things in subjection to Jesus. Right? But we do see Jesus. Okay? And Jesus has done it. And Jesus has accomplished it. And we as the church are living as a people from the future. Check this out. Okay? The future of the human race is described in the Bible. And I'm not talking about the tribulation and blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about beyond all of that. Okay? After the resurrection from the dead. We know, we see what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And that is the destiny of the human race. And we are a people who are the first fruits of that coming destiny, but we live before it has come to pass. And our job in this world is to live as a witness of what is coming. So imagine if someone were to visit here from the future. Okay, imagine we're in 2018 and somebody from 2020 gets put back two years and start saying, hey, when you hear about this coronavirus thing, it's the real deal. You need to like wear a mask and whatever, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. The whole country is going to go on lockdown for months. It's going to be this crazy, crazy thing, right? They would know how to respond to certain news things that were taking place because of their knowledge of the future, right? Does that make sense? Think about back to the future. Folks, anybody know that those movies? Okay, they take they took that almanac 
back in time. Why? Because with knowledge of the future, they were able to change their present. We are a people from the future. We are a people who are a part of what Jesus has already accomplished, but which has not been fully manifested yet. And now we live in this age as a witness of an embodiment of that coming kingdom, which is present in this age, but only for those who have eyes to see it. Does this make sense? This is a deep thing to think about deeply, all right? And our job is to cooperate with God, to participate with what God is doing in this hour at this time as we move forward towards the day when God is king over all things and the enemy has been eradicated and sin and death are no more. We live as a people in whom sin and death have been destroyed, Working towards a time, working towards a reality in, in creation where sin and death have been destroyed. Does this make sense? Yes. I have a question. Go ahead. Okay, this kind of is on topic. Sure. Kind of not. So, it, like, I understand, like, Satan's plan is, like, to destroy us, that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, but, it, like, uh, okay, hang on a second. <laughs> Satan believes in God, like, obviously. Right. Um, so if he knows, and he knows the word probably more than a lot of Christians do. So, oh, yeah. Heck so if he knows that, like, God is going to end up victorious and triumphant, then why is he, why, like, why? Great question. Trying? Absolutely great like, question. I feel like I know the answer, but at the same time, it's like, So what is the answer? I, I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to postpone it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's. That might be part of it, absolutely. I think that's part of it as well. But I also think that he's honestly convinced of his own rhetoric. I think he is, he himself has been duped by the power of sin. And he thinks there's still a chance. And he is going to fight as hard as he can. So that even if he ends up losing, he, was gonna, he has done as much damage as he possibly can in the midst. But he honestly thinks in his heart of hearts that he might just win. Even though he's already seen Jesus raised from the dead. Absolutely. And even though we like read the back of the book and we know Jesus. Absolutely. <laughs> but here's the deal. Remember what we said last week? Rebellions are built on hope. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's even true of that rebellion, okay? So Satan, that's, that is, that, I really believe that that's true. I also think that we cannot understand spiritual beings yeah. as they actually are, that we don't have a grid for how they work or what I just, we are so... Their, their existence is so radically different from ours that there's no real way for us to totally get it. Like their brain is totally way different than ours. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think it's difficult for us as embodied creatures to understand spiritual beings. Okay. Can you imagine if God made our brains like angel brains? But he's going to. That's the thing. When we rise from the dead, yeah. okay, we will be both physical and fully spiritual once again. We were fully spiritual prior to the fall. I believe that. Yeah. But now, but we will be made like Jesus 
after his resurrection, and I think we will have, and we, I believe we will have full spiritual capacity. That our capacities to understand and to whatever will be so greatly magnified that everything's going to be different. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount is the how. We've talked about the what, but the Sermon on the Mount is the how. Okay, so when God becomes king, he doesn't send in the tanks. I'm quoting N.T. Wright. He's the foremost New Testament scholar in the planet right now. Tom Wright. Okay, and this is how he describes it. He says, when God becomes king, when that's what the kingdom of God is, when God becomes president, and God's in, okay, he doesn't send in the tanks. He doesn't accomplish his will through a great army, through a military takeover, through uh, forcing political realities on the planet. When God is in charge, he sends in the meek, and he sends in the spiritually poor, and he sends in the mourning, and he sends in those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and he sends That's These are the tools by which God's kingdom shall come about. And it looks radically different than the way that, that an, an earthly king would rule, which is why Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, as he stood in front of Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate says, well, you're, so you're a king. <laughs> really? And Jesus says, Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would be fighting for me to be released. What did he mean by that? He meant my kingdom doesn't work like your kingdom does. Your kingdom, you pick the biggest ugliest, burliest guys, you load them, you arm them to the teeth and you send them in to beat the crap out of anybody that's standing in your way. But my kingdom doesn't work that way. My kingdom accomplishes what it accomplishes through self-sacrifice, through love. Okay? So, Galatians 5, 6. The kingdom of God is faith working through love. Okay, what's faith? Faith is by, faith is that thing in us by which we see the invisible God at work, by which we see what the future is going to look like. That's what faith is. And the kingdom of God is faith. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Working through love. In order to get there, we have to be love. We have to work by love. We can't operate outside of the realm of love. Love God and love neighbor is our path forward. It's how we accomplish kingdom of heaven realities in the earth. We don't do it by holding a gun to their head. Can you get somebody saved by holding a gun to their head? No. No. Because love doesn't force. Love's not coercive. Okay? This word coercive is an important word. We're going to use it a lot because This is something we have misunderstood about how God, this is something we misunderstood about power and how it works, okay? There's more than one kind of power. There is coercive power which operates according to the threat of force. That's what coercive means. If I coerce you to doing something, it means I am threatening you and then you do what I wanted you to do. I put a gun to your head and say, do this, or I pull the trigger. That's coercive power. 
It's how every government on the planet works. Do this or you're going to be punished. It's how most, most parents work a lot of the time. I wish that wasn't true about me, but it is sometimes. By the way, I don't think we should work that way, but I have, no, I have very little imagination as for what it looks like to parent without being coercive. I don't, I don't know. I try, and I don't know. God's power is not coercive. God's power isn't a threat. God's power gives you the freedom to choose and invites you into what's better. But it's up to you. And God's power is willing to allow loss so long as you remain free. And we see that in the garden, right? People ask that question, why was there a tree in the garden, right? Why didn't God just not put that tree there? Because that's not love. Having no choice is not love. Love requires the opportunity for you to choose something other than what I would want for you. And that has to be how the kingdom operates as well, because what God wants is partners, not slaves. Beloved children, not people crushed under his under his rule. Because if, if he ruled like that, like you said, he, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't have even put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Precisely. He would have given them no choice. And you might say, well, we'd all be better off. But would we? God didn't think so, apparently. Because God knew they were going to eat the apple before they knew it. Yeah. Do you think God was surprised? <laughs> He's probably like, mm, he knew what was coming. He already had another plan in place. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you don't go about it the other way. You still make that choice real. Yeah. And that's what we've got to understand. We talk about, I love, oh man, we talk about things like, oh, God is in control. No. <laughs> Um, yes, but no. Yeah. It kind of goes, it's kind of a topic, I know. But do you think that God, when he made Adam and Eve, and he just gave them the one option, like just the tree to sin from, or do you think he gave them different opportunities? I mean, the question really could be taken so many ways. Yeah. Because... I think the tree is a symbol of our option to hear what God's saying to us and say yes or not. So I don't... I don't even know if there was an actual tree, is what I'm saying. And I know that that is a scary, scary thing, and there's a bunch of you that just probably went, nope, I'm done. Um, I... We need to hear what the storyteller was telling us. It's not about whether this, these events actually took place or not. I know that's, oh man. I, I, know, I know what I'm saying right now is this, it, make, it sounds heretical and scary, but I promise you it's not. It's really not. I believe God created the world. I just, anyway, let's, let's I don't, don't want to mur murky the waters anymore. The question, but the reality is, yeah, I, I, I think 
there were probably a thousand ways. Let's let's say it's a literal. Let's say that it's that there actually were two trees and they could pick one or the other. Okay, um, there was probably a thousand ways that they could have disobeyed God. They could have walked out of the garden, whatever. But 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 this is the one that we hear about. Why? Because again, the storyteller can't tell all the details, or else we'd never get the story. So it's focused in on this one choice that they were given. Like Adam didn't have to name the animals. Would have been the same thing. Was there anything in particular wrong with that fruit? Like was it poisonous fruit? Was it magical fruit? No and no. And what is the tree of life? Was there actually a tree where people could go and take fruit and it would cause them to live forever? Or is the tree of life a picture of God's wisdom and justice and mercy? That's what I'm saying. So That's what I was going to say. I remember you talking last year about it. You're like, because I feel like you just read that and you assume that the apples that they ate or the fruit that they ate literally did have like some sort of power that right. gave them this knowledge that they didn't have before. Right. But like you, you were talking about how you don't think that's the case. It literally no. was just the fact that when they took a bite, then they're like, oh, we disobeyed God and that was yeah. the that's the thing. Evil coming in Disobedience like, or obedience. Yeah. And it, not, just, not just that, but will I provide for myself or will I receive from God? Those, that was the choice. Because that's what Satan put in front of her. You see, she knew, Eve knew her destiny as well. Her destiny was to be like God and to rule with God over all of creation. That was her destiny, which is still our destiny, by the way. That was her destiny, and she knew it. Okay? It wasn't fully manifest yet. It was real. They were very much, you know, but it wasn't fully manifest yet. And she knew there were things that she did not know and things that she could not do that eventually she would be able to do and know. And she was hungry for knowledge. And so when the enemy brings her a temptation, the temptation wasn't look at that pretty fruit. It was you can have all of that now rather than wading through God's many, you know, to, through this process of growth and maturity and whatever to, to, to gain it. And what did she do? She said, I'll provide for myself. Thank you very much. And we've been making the same choice ever since. We've been making the same choice ever since. Isn't that what every sin is? Every single sin is, is me saying, I'll do it for myself outside of God's ways and means, and, I'm not, and I, I don't need God to do it for me. It's almost like a trust. It, it, would you say it's kind of like a trust issue? It's absolutely God? a trust issue. 100% a trust issue. What do we have to do to become part of the kingdom? Like you said, faith is what we do not see, and that's trust. We, exactly. Trust it's a trust issue. Yeah. It's always been a trust issue. Do you know that the Old Testament word that we usually translate obey is the exact same word as listen? Translated from Hebrew? Yeah. Oh. It's the exact same word as listen. That's interesting. Have you ever heard, do you, do you know the Shema? The Old Testament, okay, the Shema is a prayer that Jewish people are supposed to pray every day, and it starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before you. Okay, that's, that's the Shema. They're supposed to pray it every day, okay? That word, hear, 
is the word I'm talking about. Listen and obey. It means hearing what God's saying to you and trust that he's right, even if your understanding is different from his. Does that make sense? Because God is not about, here's what you're going to do, and you're going to shut up and do it, and that's the way it's going to be. God, God gave you a brain. God gave you a will. If God wanted robots, he could have created robots. He didn't want robots. He wanted friends. And friends are not people that you control. Friends are people that are free to come and go as they please, but they choose to stay. Does that make sense? And this is the entirety of human history is God calling us to what's good for us, us saying, excuse me, I know better than you, and doing something completely different. And then when everything comes collapsing down, we start saying, God, help me, help me, please help me. And God's, because God is incredibly loving and merciful, he comes along and says, come on, let me help you out of this mess. But who got themselves in that mess? We did. We did this. And every single time that God talks about judgment coming to a group of people, a nation, etc., it is always looks the same. It is always God saying, if that's what you want, go. I'm not going to stop you anymore. Even the flood, look at the flood. What does he say? My spirit will, know, will not contend with you forever. Humanity was on this course towards total chaos and utter destruction of the entire planet. They always thought about violence and only violence all the time, the Bible says. And God says, I will not struggle and wrestle with you to keep you from destroying yourselves forever. Your days are 120 years. God said, you've got 120 years to figure this out, humanity. And if it doesn't happen, I am going to bring... I'm going to allow the chaos that you've been inviting into the world to come crashing into the world. But because I'm good, I'm going to pick a handful of humans who trust me just a little bit, and I'm going to save their lives, and through them save the rest of, you know, as much of creation as I can in this little ark, and then therefore humanity will continue forward. But I am not going to allow you to utterly ruin creation. We look at... Noah's Ark completely wrong. It is, it is a salvation story. Humanity was on the road to complete and utter destruction, and God saved some of us. God would have saved all of us if we would have repented, but we didn't. And Jewish tradition tells us that Noah wasn't just building the ark, he was also preaching. You think that's what um, what he said around Noah's time when he's like, okay, well, I'm going to save those who trust me just a little bit more. Do you think that's what he's saying today? Absolutely what he's saying today. I'm going to say this to you. This is the United States, yeah. and specifically the church in the United States, is undergoing judgment right now. Yeah. We are in the midst of judgment. God is allowing us to experience what we will get if we continue in the direction that we have been going. Yes. 
I understand. Well, do you mean judgment from the world or judgment from No, God? judgment from God. But judgment from God always looks the same way. Judgments from God. We talk about judgment from God as if God was taking a big magnifying glass and burning ants down on the ground. That is not what's going on. Judgment from God is God saying, I'm releasing you to go and do what you want to do, and the consequences are going to happen. I'm not going to stop them. Yeah. That's judgment from God. Judgment from God always, even that with this word that we use, wrath, is not a ticked off God coming down and he's, I'm not putting up with it anymore and smashing heads. That's not, that's not our God. Yeah. Is that what Jesus looked like? No. Jesus is the God who would rather die for his enemies than kill them. Okay, so the wrath of God does not look like a ticked off God coming down and just AK-47ing everyone. To do. That's not it. And any picture we have of the end times has to be submitted to Jesus, by the way. But that's a whole other conversation. It's almost like what you said last year. He's back in his and he's kicked. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not that. Yeah. Yeah, that was... If you've ever seen the movie UHF, which is a great gift to humanity, I have to say, <laughs> from Weird Al Yankovic, um, there's a commercial, it's called Gandhi 2. He's back and he's ticked off. And Gandhi, who was this peace-loving guy, is like coming in with machine guns and killing people. And Anyway, uh, but... <laughs> But we do that with the end times, with Jesus. We say, Jesus is coming back, and this time to kill everyone. What? what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That is not the Jesus we know. Then maybe our interpretation of those scriptures is incorrect. Anyway, I've not even touched Matthew 5, since, and we only don't have much time. But this is the how. We have the what. Matthew 5 is the how. And so it begins with humility. It begins living in this place where we understand our own spiritual poverty. Who are the people that are going to bring the kingdom to the earth? Humble people that recognize our need for God. People that aren't going to reach for the fruit of self-preservation, self-activization, but people that are going to wait on God's way, who are going to recognize I can't do this without him. The spiritually poor. That's step one. What does it look like to bring the kingdom to earth? It begins with poverty of spirit. And it continues with the next verse. Blessed are those that mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, how many of you have ever been in mourning? Like you've lost someone close to you. Is that a pleasant feeling? <laughs> no. It's not a pleasant feeling. So the statement, and it's even funnier when you understand that this word in the Greek that we translate as blessed could be better translated as happy. <laughs> happy are those that mourn. Well, no, that's kind of the opposite of mourning, Jesus. Is, is, but again, it's not in the initial state. It's in what that state brings about. Poverty of spirit brings a release of the kingdom. Mourning brings about the activity of God to comfort us. Can you repeat that? 
the blessedness isn't in the initial state. The blessedness is, so it's not in the first half. It's in the second half of the statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the second half of that statement? Um, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Correct. And that's where the blessedness is. It's not in the first half. It's in the second half. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's, it's not really mourning about those who lost. It's mourning that you'll be with them. Well, and this is particular. This is, plus these statements build on each other. Okay? So if you are, if you recognize your own poverty of spirit, how is it going to make you feel? Sad. Sad, yes. You'll be in mourning. Yeah. Okay? And it is the person that recognizes their poverty of spirit who enters into a place of grief over their poverty of spirit. Are you with me? They enter into a place of grief. They see the brokenness that exists on the inside and they say, I am not okay with this. I want this to change. They enter into a place of grief and through that grief, they begin to be made like God. It isn't you know, Jesus talks a lot about suffering. The, Old, the New Testament talks a lot about suffering and how suffering is for our good. Why? Because it forms us in the image of Christ. Pain is not an enemy. I couldn't say a, a less American thing than, th than that statement right there. Pain is not an enemy and pleasure is not always a friend. Okay, and Jesus is saying, when we, when we realize how much like God we're not, we shouldn't be okay with it. We shouldn't be like, well, that's interesting. No, we should mourn it. We should cry out. But here's the truth. Mourning is a process. Okay, used to, almost everybody raised their hand when I said, have you ever been in mourning? Are you familiar with the five stages of grief? Okay. When I am with someone who has a loved one that passes away, I talk to them about the stages of grief. I talk to them about how mourning is a process. It's a process by which we let go of one thing and we come into another. In the case of mourning the death of someone, we're letting go of the fact, we're letting go of them. They're not going to be a part of our lives anymore, at least not in the same way. And that hurts, right? That's painful. And by the end of the process of grief, as we move through those five stages of grief, we arrive at the place where we see that even though life will never be the same, it's still going to be okay. And that we still have those things about that person that they deposited in us when they were here. That while we've lost their physical presence, that person is still a part of our lives in a very real way. Right? Does that make sense? And by the way, people can be caught in those stages of grief and never and no, don't allow themselves to move forward. And it becomes a cycle where they keep... They will, they'll be numb for a while and then they'll be back to, to grief again and, and it'll flare up and cause problems and then they'll be numb for a while and then come back to that. Because mourning is a process through which the human soul processes change. And the human soul needs that process 
so that it can move forward. We're never going to find the new thing, the new way to live, unless we walk through the process of grief. And it's the same thing when we recognize the reality that we don't, that we aren't as much like God as we should be, and that we're not, you know, that there is a lot that we need to be thinking about and moving forward in. Okay, there is a process that we have to go through. You know what stage one is? Denial. Denial. Isn't that always the case? When somebody says something to you about you that you later figure out is true, don't you mean to say, I'm not like that. (laughs) I do. Nuh-uh, shut up. I'm not like that. That's not true. Right? Sometimes people get so ticked off by the very possibility that that might be real that they never move beyond the stage of denial, which is really, really sad. And that's especially true when we start talking about the ways that it is revealed to us that we are not who God wants us to be, that we have not been shaped in the image of Christ in specific ways. When we begin to see and when it begins to be revealed to us that we are not who God wants us to be at any given moment, I have seen over and over again a people who respond only in denial and never move beyond it. Yes, I am. How dare you tell me I'm not? And that's where they live. And because of that, they never grow. Okay, that is what happens on Facebook every day. Where someone will bring truth and on someone else will see that truth and be like, nah, and start, you know, saying horrible things on Facebook. And they're never going to grow. Never, ever. Which is why Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, because there is a certain, there are certain people that are so invested in their own self, uh, their own understanding of themselves as righteous that they will never even consider the, rea- the, the probability that they don't have everything figured out. Exactly. Their whole identity was built on I am a righteous person before God and I'm more righteous than you. (laughs) Okay. So when Jesus comes along and says, no, you're not. You're cherry picking the Bible. You're not okay. There's this thing wrong with you and this thing wrong with you and this thing wrong with you. You're in alignment with your culture's values. You're not in alignment with the kingdom's values. Yeah. It's like Jesus basically calling them like they're... They say one, they they worship him with their lips, but hit their hard lives like, like a hypocrite. Yes. And this is my, this is the prophetic word to the American church right now. American church, you are in line with your culture's values, but you are not in line with the kingdom's values. And it's time to wake up and it's time to change and it's time to align with Jesus and not align with the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or any other party, but we are followers of Jesus Christ. And it is time for us to realign ourselves with the values of the kingdom and disengage from the values of the culture because the values of the culture are filled with death. And some of the values of the culture at least claim to match the values of Christ. But even in those little ways, we, we have to recognize we need to be following Jesus and not the culture. Yeah. 
I'm going to start preaching some here. Go ahead if you, go ahead if you feel like it. We, <laughs> we love it when people preach out. Well, too well, the reality is we need more. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they should be comforted. They should be comforted. Yes, as we, as we get exposed to the realities of who Jesus is, our own sin gets uncovered, and that causes mourning. The comfort comes from the reality that the Holy Spirit is at work on the inside of us, forming us into the image of Christ. The comfort comes when we realize that a bad diagnosis with a good prognosis equals a healthy person. Okay? Does that make sense? All right? That, yes, we're sick, but we've got a great doctor who has dealt with this before, and we're going to be okay at, at the end of this journey. We're going to make it through. This is not a sickness unto death. This is a God calling out the sickness of our soul so that he can heal it. But if we deny that we're sick, we're just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. But that's what we do. We, are, we live in a, den, a culture of denial. We live in a culture of numb, numbing yourself out. That is, that is what our culture does. We engage in, in substances in activities, in entertainments that disconnect us from our own emotional realities. And because of that, we're not able to walk with Jesus and become better people. Yeah. It's almost like, it's kind of, that kind of is like a little bit what we talked about in guys' group on Friday. We talked about toxic masculinity and it's like how a man... How the American man is like someone that shouldn't show their emotions or their feelings, and that's not, and that's like what girls do. They that's right. what the world, the culture says, and yeah, that reminded me of that. It's absolutely true. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. That's the reality. We have. We live in a culture, and this isn't just true for men, but it's, I think, more true for men than it is for women in a lot of ways, where we would rather be numb than be alive. Because here's the deal. Numb, being numb doesn't just kill pain. It also kills joy. In order for you to be able to feel joy, you also have to be vulnerable to pain. And sometimes the most Powerful joys are joys mixed with sorrow. Okay? I know. Like watching my son graduate from high school. Okay? That is a powerful joy. I'm so proud of him. I'm so excited for his future. But I also know and understand that this means that he's moving away from my life. that he's on a trajectory that's going to take him 
out from the relationship we once had and into something completely different. Now, does this, is he gone from my world? No, of course not. He's always going to be my son. But things are changing, and that brings me sorrow at the same time. And so some of the greatest joys are joys tinged with sorrow. And when, all, when we are so dedicated to the elimination of pain from our lives, we are going to miss the joy as well. Jesus calls us into that stuff so that we can acknowledge it. We can acknowledge the pain and the suffering and we walk through it because all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What I love about that statement is that when you read it right, we're not denying the pain of the moment. We're just acknowledging that God is at work in the midst of that pain to do something beautiful with it. Look at the most beautiful thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. It is also the most painful thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And that is the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for us to be a people that walk in the way of the kingdom, we can't be afraid of mourning. But we also don't live there unnecessarily. We don't call for mourning. We don't, we don't seek out mourning and sadness. But when it comes, we embrace it knowing that we shall be comforted. I feel like you guys are going to think that all I ever think about is President Trump, but this is one of his character flaws, okay? Because everything is huge, great, best ever, et cetera, et cetera, even when it's not. And it takes a person of maturity and a person to say things are not good, but that doesn't mean they're going to stay bad. I don't want a president that tells me everything's good when it's not. I don't want a president that doesn't tell me that I need to be careful about a virus, even though he knows it's deadly and that it's airborne. I don't want that. That's not okay. That's not a mature point of view. It's not, that's not, it's, and again, I pray for President Trump every single day. I'm doing that because I, I really want the Lord to help me love him. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you because it's hard for me. Even though politically, we probably agree on 90, 95% of things. My issues are character issues, not politics issues. It's not okay for us to deny. I used to, and I'm sure this is still a thing, although I don't hear about it nearly as much anymore since I'm no longer a youth pastor. I used to deal with people all the time who were involved in self-harm. They would cut themselves, etc. And when I talked to them, they always said the same thing. They always said that when they did that, they could no longer feel the pain that was going on inside, which is why they did it. That it would quiet, that external pain would quiet the internal pain. And that the internal pain was so bad that they had to do whatever they could to quiet that internal pain, including taking a razor and cutting themselves. 
which absolutely broke my heart. I remember the first time I had that conversation with a young lady. She was caught cutting herself, and then they discovered, like, all down her leg. I mean, her whole leg was covered with these cuts. She'd been doing it for months and months. And I sat with her, and I said, help me understand this, because I don't. I don't get it. And she began to explain this to me, how... The first time that she did it, she was numb for a couple of weeks. But then slowly pain started returning, so she had to do it again. And then it only lasted for a week and a half. And so she had, until it got to the place where she was doing this to herself every day. And I said to her, being numb isn't going to make anything better. I know it means you don't hurt. And I don't want you to hurt, but at the same time, you need to talk about this stuff that's causing you so much pain. We need to, you need to bring that out. Because until, that, until you actually talk about it, until you bring that out into, into the light, how is it ever going to heal? I said, imagine if I broke my femur. And I went to the doctor and they said, well, we're going to have to set the, set the bone, which is really, really going to hurt. And then we're going to have to put you in a body cast for the next six or eight weeks, because that's about how long it takes for a femur to, to heal. And I said, you know what? Screw all that. I don't want to do any of that. That sounds like a really painful process. How about you just give me Novocaine so I can't feel it and I'm just going to walk out of here? Would a good doctor do that for me? Absolutely not. But imagine they did. Imagine that they shot my leg full of Novocaine and I just went walking. And then every day I would come back for another shot of Novocaine. What would happen to my leg? Would it get better? It would get worse, and not just worse for a little while. It would get worse for the rest of my life, and it would probably, I'd probably get gangrene, and it would probably kill me. Right? Yeah. Because that's what happens when we leave pain unaddressed. And here's Jesus saying, don't be afraid of mourning. It's the pathway to healing. It's the pathway to comfort. It's the pathway to things getting better. So when you are in a place of mourning, bring it to me. Let me be engaged with it. And I will walk you into health. But if you refuse to mourn, if you ignore what's the, the things inside of you that are going wrong, if you ignore your spiritual poverty as if it wasn't an issue, Nothing can ever be fixed. The Roman culture was, if possible, an even more toxically masculine culture than the one we live in now. <laughs> and weakness was persecuted. 
So for Jesus to tell people, blessed are the poor in spirit, was so countercultural that everybody was like, well, that's not right. And then he went on to say something even worse, blessed are those who mourn. Excuse me, Jesus. Uh, no. The thing is, Roman culture had a lot to say about the role of emotion. The philosophers that they followed, half of them, many of them, considered emotion to be a rough animal thing that we should be transcending for the beauty and purity of reason. And here's Jesus saying, no, you can't ignore that. I'm inviting you into a place of mourning. The final thing I'll say is this. Everything I've said up to now is just mourning about myself. But there's a lot more than just me to mourn about. There's a lot more than just me to mourn about. I also live around other human beings who are suffering and broken. And Jesus is calling me into mourning for them as well. When I talk about our culture and how broken our worldly culture is, this is part of my mourning process, saying, Oh, Jesus, please bring healing to this world in which I live. Bring healing to my nation. Bring healing to my church. Bring healing to the church, Big C, in the United States of America. Oh, God, we're not okay. God, do something about it. God, change things. There's a huge thing that was happening all this summer that you're very aware of, and that was the protests all across the country in regards to racial injustice. And there was a whole lot of people in the church that just wanted to kind of pat people on the head and say, aren't you cute? Move on. That this isn't a gospel issue, that this isn't a church-related issue, that this isn't something we should be talking about. They're wrong, because blessed are they that mourn. Now, should we be getting violent and breaking things and killing people? And No! Because that's not the how. Jesus taught us the how of the kingdom, and killing people is not a part of the how. But when we recognize that one group of people is being oppressed in a nation, if we do not mourn that oppression, we will never see healing. And in the midst of that time, as I was praying for the nation, the Lord showed me, and I believe this is what we are called to do as the church. The Lord showed me the church in the United States. And he said, this is what I would call the church to do. And the church put on sackcloth and covered its head with ashes and began walking across the nation, weeping tears of blood. And as the tears fell, the lines of division were erased by those tears because it is our mourning that will bring comfort to this nation. Not our confident assertions that I'm not racist. Stop it. That's not the question. The question is, is there injustice in the land for people of color? And the answer is yes. And if all you're going to do is live in the place of denial 
and say, that's not a real thing and your suffering doesn't matter, we have thrown away our witness. What we are called to do is weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we are to step into the place of mourning and say, oh God, heal our land. Forgive us of our sin. We talked last week about the difference between individual sins and systemic sins. And while you yourself may never have been a racist person or done a racist thing, the system you live in, the system you cooperate with, and the system that you prop up with your activity, your money, your etc., is deeply racist. By the way, I would say, it's kind of impossible that you haven't done a racist thing. We all have, even if we didn't mean to. So I'm all for people saying, I, I am not intentionally racist. I totally agree with that. But we exist, in, we exist in a system that is, because it was a system that was invented by a group of people who were deeply racist. The only way to fix that is to it for, to first acknowledge it and then take action. We have to mourn so that we can be comforted. Are you with me? Does this make sense? I've never heard about it like that, but I, I agree with what you're saying. It's just the objective truth. And I understand why people get upset when other people tell them they're racist and they don't feel racist. I totally understand that. Yeah. I totally understand that. But we need to acknowledge, one, that we live in a system that is, that is deeply racist, and two, that having been formed by that system, there are probably unconscious biases that exist in us that we won't understand until we become aware of them. And the only way we become aware of them is by listening to the people who have been oppressed by our regular way of life. Yeah. Just saying, when someone says they're suffering, we don't say, no, you're not. So you would, so you would say that, like, you, I saw your church and I saw First Assembly did this. They've done series on, like, in sermons and series on, like, racial reconciliation. And I saw you had, like, a kind of like a talk show panel <laughs> yeah, I did. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and would you say that's a good angle for the church to take on? It's or? a beginning anyway. Yeah. It's a beginning. I think we have a whole lot more to do. But it all begins in a recognition. It all begins with mourning. It begins with becoming aware of the problem, poverty of spirit, and mourning the problem is step two. We'll go on to the other steps as we move forward. The kingdom of God comes by the Sermon on the Mount. Amen and amen. Any questions? Would you consider the Beatitudes to be like the process of getting a deeper relationship with God? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is how the kingdom comes. Personally yeah. and... Yep. Corporately. Yeah. It's the kingdom, is the Sermon on the Mount. Which is why I teach it every year in this class. 
which means that somebody that's here for three years is going to hear it three years in a row. Now, it always sounds different, but that's why I teach it, because we should be studying this at least once a year. And I spend a significant amount of time, personally, contemplating the Sermon on the Mount. I really do think it's the most important set, like, three chapters in the Bible. I just do. And I'm not alone in that. That's, that's a very ancient position that has been held by many, many, many far more intelligent and Christ-like people than myself. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, I pray right now by your Holy Spirit that you would begin to bring to light sicknesses and brokennesses in us that we need to repent of and that we need to mourn for. Because, Lord, we long for your comfort. We, Lord, Lord, we long to move beyond the place of brokenness and into a place of healing. Give us the courage to get face-to-face -face with these things, knowing that we've got a good doctor, that this is not a, this is not, we're not being condemned because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we are being called into life and out of death. Holy Spirit, Spirit, give us ears to hear and a mind to comprehend all that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.